Ephesians chapter 2. What a great text this is this morning. What a great text. We are in week three of our series called Calibrate, which is about moving forward together as a church family. And in Ephesians here, we're looking at the question of what is the place of works in the Christian life? What are, what are works? Works are things that we do. Okay, I'm not just talking about Monday to Friday or something like that. Works are simply the things we do. What is the place of works in the Christian life? What's the relationship between faith and works? And so we'll see uh, from this text in Ephesians chapter 2 that we as Christians and as a church are a people created for good works. Alright, so let's uh, read together. I'm going to read because it would be wrong not to. Uh, I want to read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and then we're going to focus on verses 8 to 10. Okay, but we're going to read the whole thing because it's so good. It's the best. Alright, let's read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. Let's pray real briefly. Holy Spirit, as we, we come now to, to this text that you authored, along with the Apostle Paul, might you impress it deeply upon our hearts, might we see the gospel, and might we see something of the beauty of salvation. Might you use this text to edify and build up this church and these people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have heard a sermon about good works. That's a bad thing, right? I've never... Yeah, come on, extra hands go up, okay? That's not really... Uh, it's, not a, it's not a great thing. It's not something that we tend to, to talk about. We talk a lot about works and we slip in application 
you know, in churches all the time. Do this, do this. But good works. We see this phrase, good works, in Ephesians 2.10. But many of us have heard only, really, of Isaiah 64.6. You know that one? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Maybe you've heard it referred to this way. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And maybe you've heard someone say, and all our good works are like filthy rags. And maybe that's all you've really heard. And I think it's a great verse. I think it's evangelism, especially as explaining uh, explaining uh, the faith to someone. I think it is a great, great, wonderful verse, and it's in the Bible. But I wonder, and this might not be true for you, but I wonder, do many of us deep down misapply Isaiah 64, 6 and look at good works in only one light? We look at good works as only being like filthy rags. Our righteous deeds are just like polluted garments and filthy rags. Do we live the Christian life thinking that way, perhaps? Maybe the small in some small way. Isaiah 64, 6 is important, but it is not the final word on good works. So we have to understand the place of good works in our righteous deeds in and the Christian life rightly. I have inserted some confusion into this. You are now worried if I'm going to go off on some random tangent. I'm not doing this so that we might rightly understand the relationship between faith and good works. Okay? We're going to look very briefly uh, through the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. We need to see what we've been saved from. In verses 8 and 9 then, we're going to see how we've been saved. And then the third part in verse 10, what we've been saved to. So that's Ephesians, Ephesians 2, if you could really uh, break it down. What we've been saved from, how we've been saved, what we've been saved uh, to. The first few verses of Ephesians 2 deal with the place of every person apart from Christ. That's why it says, like, dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath. It's difficult words. These verses here behind the curtain and show reality as it truly is. For many of us, and we understand this, we, apart from Christ and living our own way, living our own lives, we think we're free. Isn't that our society's definition of freedom? Doing what you want, when you want, how you want, with whoever you want. That's what freedom is, according to our culture. And therefore, if you're Christian, you people, you're strange because you're, you're shackled. You've given up your freedom. And I think 
Ephesians 2 is wonderful in so many ways because it shows the reality and the lie behind that view that if you do whatever you want, you're free. The reality is, you're not. It says you're just following the course of the world like everybody else. You're free, but you're the ultimate follower. This reality here is that there's spiritual death, there's alienation from God, alienation from the Creator who designed us mercifully to walk in a certain way. And even our best deeds are dead works. Dead works. And what we come to see from this text, and this is really jarring to so many people, that even the most moral person in the entire world, apart from Christ, is a child of wrath. And that is reality. And it's right. And it is fair. And it is just. And it is good for God to do that. Because that person has lived their entire life breathing God's air. Drinking God's water and showing Him no thanks. Rejecting God's kindness. Paul says in Romans 1 that they are without excuse because they can see and they can tell that there is a Creator. Ephesians 2 shows us this difficult truth that we must be saved from God. Not just ourselves, saved from ourselves. We must be saved from God by God. Then in verses 8 and 9, it's a really wonderful little thing to do, just some basic grammar. I know those of you that have left school uh, don't seem to want to, don't want to do this naturally, but just just write down verses 8 and 9, write, write them down, and then contrast verses 8 and 9 with verse 10. Look at the clauses, and there's, you see these wonderful contrasts. Verses 8 and 9 show us how we've been saved. God, in His mercy, sends His Son to do what we could not do. Obey Him perfectly. Live the life that He created His creation to live. Jesus lived a perfect life of good works. Have you thought of Jesus that way? He lived a perfect life of good works. And then, he died upon the cross, bearing our curse. And Isaiah 53.10 says, it pleased the Lord, it pleased Yahweh to crush him. He's put him to grief. He's put him to grief. Jesus volunteered to take the wrath of the children deserved by the children of wrath. The wrath of God, the winepress of God's wrath, Revelation uses those words, it was crushed in our place to reconcile rebels to God, to give us eternal life. And we'll see, 
to restore us to truly good works. And what is the means, according to Ephesians 2, that this is done through? What is the means by which God saves us? Obviously, through Christ. But we see in verse 8, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, through faith. That is the means by which God saves. Grace is, of course, a wonderful name uh, for a girl. Grace is a gift. Not something earned, but the gift of Christ. That gives himself, he gives his son. This grace is our older brother, our Savior, our Lord. It is by grace we have been saved. It is not something that we have done. And it says by grace is a gift through faith. And in this text, faith is contrasted with works. We see this repeatedly. By faith, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works. Faith is not something earned, but it is the act of receiving. It is laying hold of the gift of God, receiving it by faith, trusting in this gift of salvation that God has given in His Son. Faith is never a work. It is a simple receiving. So we see that, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. And this gives the, the Christian a new relationship with God. If we see in the first three verses of Ephesians 2, some of the difficulty and alienation that the non-Christian has apart from, from God, we see a new identity in Christ. In verse 6 it says, He has raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Christian has a truly new identity. And part of this, though this word is not found here in Ephesians 2, is the declaration that the Apostle Paul uses of being justified. Justification, God declares a sinner righteous by faith because of the work of Christ. He sees in their place Christ having punished Christ for that person's sin upon the cross. This righteousness, this status of justification, is received, this gift, by grace, through faith. We see in verse 9, it says, So, not by a result of work, so that no one may boast. It really is so simple, people. If our status, this new status with God, was received by the results of our work, we could boast. I did that. Every old black that played last night was picked on the basis of them being good enough. The Christian is given this new status for the opposite reason. They were not good enough. Someone was good in them. Place and that person is Christ. And so we cannot boast. 
We cannot boast in and of ourselves. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.4.10, great verse once again, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How does, what does Paul boast in? Himself? No. Boast in the cross of Christ. He's boast in what God has done for him in Christ. So we must be saved from God, by God, and we see in verse 10, for God. This is the bit that many of us, and I include myself in it, tend to be weak in. I want to read verse 10 again. It says what we've been saved to. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here we start to see some of these contrasts between verses 8 and 9 and verse 10. These contrasts stand out. The Christian is not saved by their works. We're not saved by our works. But it says the Christian life is his workmanship, that we might display God's grace. Everyone... Every single one of us here is part of creation. A part of creation. God created us. The Christian has become part of a new creation. The language of going from Adam to being in Christ. In creation, God makes everything out of nothing. In Christ, he makes a divine masterpiece out of someone dead in in trespasses and sins. That's such a contrast, right? He creates something out of nothing, but in creating the world. But in some ways, even a greater thing. He takes a rebel, he takes someone dead in trespasses and sins, and turns them into a divine masterpiece. And I mean that. The text means it. See that word in verse 10, workmanship? The word there. Workmanship. You can imagine it just in your English Bible. You don't don't need to know Greek to see this. Whose workmanship? It's God's workmanship, right? Okay? I am terrible at art. Absolutely terrible. I can't sing. I can't draw. I can't create. I'm just absolutely shocking at all of those things. And when I see good art, I really tend to want to appreciate it. Like, I see good singing. I see good painting. I'm like, that's awesome. Because it's not something that I'm ever in a habit of comparing. I never go, yeah, I could do better. Right? Awful. Everyone here, I'm sure, is impressed by someone. Whether it's a a rapper, a painter, an author, whatever it is, an actor, you're impressed by someone. Now imagine how good God is at this stuff. The The word here for workmanship really means work of art. That's, that's, That's kind of what it's pointing towards. 
It's a craftsman's masterpiece. Let's apply this. God declares the Christian his workmanship, his work of art. And he's really good at doing that. And in this text, not ultimately just via creation, because we see Psalm 139, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made, and every person is, bears some semblance of, of God's, God's work, but it says here this is a new creation, a new kind of workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It says there, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, are his workmanship. And I'm not saying this to you to make you want to boast in yourself. But I'm saying this because of something of the wonderful value that the children of God in Christ have. You are His workmanship all the time. You always are. And isn't that that's comforting, is it not? I, I found that encouraging. I don't feel like that much of the time. That's what it says. It is comforting to us, I think. We never fully overcome our sinfulness in this life. We never ultimately arrive in a place of perfection. We never get to that place of ultimate holiness in this life. But God declares us righteous, declares us new creations, not just declares us new creation, makes us new creations through His Spirit, and He sees the Christian as his masterpiece. If I was one of those uh, pastors that wears jeans that are too tight and stands up here um, without a pulpit, I would say, say to the person next to you, you are God's masterpiece. But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not remotely cool enough to do that. Okay? So how do we summarize this text? You are saved not by your works, but for good works. That's what this text is driving towards. There is a kind of good works, there is a kind of righteous deed that God is interested in. And those are done by His workmanship in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ are our works truly good. And it says here that they were prepared beforehand. God prepared them beforehand. That was his plan. That he saved the people so that they might do good works. So what are good works? Do we just decide this for ourselves? Do we just like use our conscience and say, cool, that sounds good, I'll do that. No, God tells us. The Creator tells the potter 
tells the clay what to do. The creator shows the creation how to do good works. As a, as a summary of this, uh, I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 91. It says, what are good works? And it says this, only those which are done out of true faith conform to God's law and are done for God's glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. And I think that gives a, I think that's a fair um, a sort of train track for which us to, to, to run along. And so we should, we should start with things like the, the Ten Commandments, right? That there's only one God that we should not commit idolatry, that we should uh, worship God, that we should not honor, uh, sorry, that we should honor father and mother, that we should not murder, not steal, not commit adultery, not lie, not covet. And we see those, and we go, that's mostly a list of things not to do. That's not a good work. Uh, things like the uh, the Westminster Elijah Catechism, I really appreciate them. They say, what does it mean to keep the Sixth Commandment not to murder? And then it'll say things, and it'll spin it in a positive light. And it'll say, like, it means to also to protect the dignity of and, and, uh, and lives of other people. The flip side, don't murder, protect people, protect their lives, look after them. And there's uh, so many instances in the New Test- Testament of that happening. I mean, just in Ephesians, where it says uh, to use gracious speech, speak graciously, hold up. Well, that is the flip side of the Ninth Commandment, which is not to lie. The opposite of lying is to speak words of truth and grace. And that's how uh, so much of uh, the New Testament seems to work. Not committing adultery also means protect the purity of the marriage bed, as it says in Hebrews. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So we don't get to just work out for ourselves what we think a good work is. God's already told us what good works are, and we're called to, to walk in those. And so the wonderful thing in all of this is that we don't then have to dream up great things to do for God in order to do good works. We simply can do the things we are called to do around the people that we have around us doing what God has us doing in the stage of life that he has us. You notice that in this world, go any kind of social gathering, one of the first questions someone asks you is, what do you do for work? Or what do you do? Right? And unfortunately, what's behind that question in many ways is what you do determines your identity. Because if not, we live that way. You simply are your job. And many people would push back when they hear it that way, but that's how we live. You simply are your job. And we think certain jobs are more valuable than other jobs, and so those people are just better than other people. Just gets a little bit sad. 
Doesn't this text push back on that? I think it does. You are not God's workmanship, God's masterpiece, because you are an accountant, a student, a mother, a retiree, a secretary, a manager. You're not God's masterpiece because of that. No, it says you're God's workmanship because you are a new creation in Christ who then seeks to do good works in what God has called them to. And so there's this really unfortunate view that the only really special works are pastors and missionaries. If you're not a pastor, you're not some kind of missionary, only church things are holy, and everything else apart from those things are not as valuable. And I think that is sad. Everyone else in that frame of reference, everyone else just does ordinary things that don't ultimately count as much in the eyes of God. But no, that's something called neo-monasticism. It's just not biblical. It's like monks in a monastery. That's the way to live a holy life. It's not true. So if you're here, you're a child, you're an adult, you're a student, you're a single, you're married, you're unmarried, you're old, you're young, you're unemployed, you are employed, we should ask ourselves this question of application. What good work has God uniquely placed me to do? What has He gifted me with? What is, who has He put around me? How can I do good to those around me? Ask yourself those kind of questions. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created with value in the image of God, and sin came from serving themselves. And we see that right there. She gave me the apple, I ate it, it's her fault. You know, there's just this constant dislike of one another, this constant serving of self rather than, than other, hiding from God, being alienated from Him, hating each other. And salvation reverses that, we come to see. It reverses that. It begins the process of restoring the image of God in humanity. I want to start concluding with something that does concern me, that I hear a fair bit, not too much in this church, but how easy is it for us to say, and we think we're being humble, we say like, oh, I'm such a sinner, I'm so depraved, you know, I'm totally depraved, I'm a sinner, alright, okay, I get that, you are totally depraved in that you can't chase after God in and of yourself. You are still yet a sinner. Is that the fullness of the picture? What has Christ done for you? Are you really being humble if you ignore the fact that He has made you a new creation? I don't think we are when we speak like that. If we ignore that God has done something wonderful for us. 
We're not being humble. We're not actually giving him the glory he does deserve when we speak in that way. We should say that. We should say that to each other. It's not about saying, you're awesome, you're wonderful in and of yourself and just leaving God out of it. That's not Christian either. But it's admitting that God has done wonderful things and that people, we can say, you are God's workmanship. There's something that is missing in so many good Bible-believing churches, and I've become convicted of it lately. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Do you think he said that to boost their egos? No, he didn't. But he says to these people, you yourselves are full of goodness. He's acknowledging the work of Christ in their life, is he not? Paul is recognizing that they have been changed in Christ. So we must keep these things distinct. We cannot boast in and of ourselves, but we should boast in the cross of Christ. Maybe you've been never been told. Seems to be a thing. You've never been told by anyone. I'm proud of you. Maybe you really want to hear that. Really want to know that someone notices you and is proud of you. That's what it's saying here in Ephesians 2. God is saying, I am proud of you. You are my workmanship. I have saved you. I am saving you. I've saved you for good works. Now, walk in that. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. God has prepared us for good works that we should walk in them. And God says to us now, walk. Do these things. Walk in that life. And know that I delight in you because you are my workmanship. Let's pray.